Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thanksgiving week. Thanksgiving, yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like people nowadays like have like Friendsgivings and like mm-hmm. travel is expensive during time. So mm-hmm. people like I saw on one Instagram that I follow, they were doing it like a week early. So it's basically like this entire week. It's like Thanksgiving in my mind. I feel like people after Halloween go straight to Christmas. So yeah. I always like to give love to Thanksgiving. Yeah. So here's that Thanksgiving love. And you're probably listening to this in June. I don't know. Whatever. Maybe. It's fine. You could it's be cool. listening hey, to this enjoy in, the sun. in uh, 2057. I don't know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we, we just want to be here. I'm just oh, my gosh. <laughs> I meant, like, global warming type. It's Ooh, very cold geez. today for us. It, it but, is. Um, we want to take a moment to thank all of you, thank all of our guests, thank all of our listeners. We are very, very thankful for all of you. What started out as something that we thought, if we have one person that listens a it would lark, be amazing if you will. yeah and you all have made it so amazing to not only share kind of this idea that we had of really getting everyone to connect and to talk about these really important issues but we've learned so much from all of you and all of our amazing guests that we've had on so you know, we want to thank you for that. And we hope that if there's someone in your life that has really made an impact either in your child's life or if you're a teacher in your classroom, and we just encourage you to, you know, there's no gesture too small. Just let them know. It's, I think it's important for us to do that because there's so much negativity in this world, especially with social media and with everything that's going on with politics. It's really easy to kind of get into sucked into that. So, you know, providing someone just a simple gesture of being like, I see you, I feel like you've made an impact in my life that's been positive, I'm thankful for you. goes a long way. I hear you, I see you, you made a positive impact <laughs> on my say, life. I hear you, I see you, I love you. <laughs> we'll get back to that's you on like that. therapy component that people do. <laughs> well, here's a bit of good news that we would love to share with you guys. The highly anticipated panel discussion, the bridge between reading literacy and the consequences of falling behind. You are going to listen to it. It was a fabulous event. Thank you to everyone that attended. Thank you to everybody that donated. We raised close to $13,000. Special shout out to Sandra and Roger. Their family wasn't able to make it to the event, but they were probably our biggest donors to the event. Obviously, Fusion Academy, who was a title sponsor and yeah, basically our co It wouldn't have hosts. been as amazing as it was without them. Yeah, we appreciate I, th- them. You know, we were able to get such great panelists and that is our goal, right? Is is starting that conversation and also providing solutions to the problems that we presented, mm-hmm. right? We wanted to really be able to do that. So all the sponsors that we've been talking to you guys about were part of that and we're just eternally grateful. We're able to provide with that money pro bono that's free legal services to about 24 families. Our podcast outreach with each of the people that were there, I think we had close to 100 people. If they tell one person or they tell another yeah. person like we're thinking Expands. that reach is going to be about a thousand people we had a very big announcement about the inclusive education project so we've shared it on social media but stay tuned to the end of the podcast because we do make that announcement and we will get right into it so enjoy. hunker down this is a little bit longer of an episode so grab your snacks yeah. um, if you're baking a long drive That'll be Thanksgiving. good. Mm-hmm. Pop listen. this in. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe pause it for now and say, hey, I'm going on a road trip tomorrow. I'm going to listen to it then. Force the entire car to listen to it. No, it's really great information. Yeah. All the panelists just, you know, they did and a lot of work. And it's not us talking. Yeah, no, so if you're us. like, yeah. oh, I don't want to listen to Vicky yeah. and Amanda for no. an hour, yeah. don't worry. Uh, yeah. You don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> These are all experts in their field. They took the time to, you know, research and outline together. And we just, the conversation even was was so much better than we could have planned for. So Mm -hmm. we hope you guys enjoy and eat that turkey or tofurkey or whatever you enjoy for this holiday. Enjoy. Hi, welcome everybody to our fifth annual fundraising event. This year we have a panel. It is the bridge between reading literacy and the consequences of falling behind. 
I think I remembered it. So that's <laughs> good. So thank you guys for being on time. You didn't hit traffic, so thank you, thank you, thank you. We are going to do a couple different things. We're going to have Vanessa come up in a little bit. She's going to introduce the panelists and our wonderful moderator. And we just wanted to thank you because all proceeds from the event will go to providing free legal services for families. Yes, yeah, so 100% of, thank you, thank you. 100% of the proceeds will go to the Inclusive Education Project and about 90% of our, the money that comes in goes directly to free pro bono legal services for low-income families, not just here in Orange County, but all over Southern California and Northern California. So we really appreciate you know, all the support, all the organizations. So you know, today we're gonna have a wonderful conversation, just like you're peering into their living room here about literacy. And we're hoping to have, you know, kind of spark the conversation, change the conversation around literacy and what we can do about it, not just that there's a problem. So we'd love to thank our sponsors for helping us put on this amazing event. Uh, the Laguna Beach Library, Cotton on Kids, Vegan by Victoria's Dessert, Raw Baby Dessert, Laguna Digital Printing, Help Me Grow Orange County, Jaybird Kombucha, Madeline Javier Photo, and Christopher Nichols Music. And so we are so glad you guys can be here to listen to this conversation. Please stay after the panel because we have some great food, drinks, music, and networking opportunities. Oh, the opportunity oh. drawing. We don't say raffle tickets. The opportunity drawing. So there's a couple of different ways that can purchase additional ones. I think if you subscribe to our podcast plug, which this is being recorded, that's why the microphones are pointed that way so we're recording this so everybody can listen to it again it's gonna be so exciting um so yes stick around and vanessa if you could come up really quick and after the panel we have a big announcement as well i'm vanessa i'm the head of school at fusion academy in mission viejo and if you've met me and even if you haven't you know that i really 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 love having the opportunity to listen to beautiful conversations, and I have a feeling that that's what we're all in for. It is a real honor of mine to introduce to you the panelists who are up here, so I'm just gonna go right in because you did not come here to hear me. So first, Robin Podway is the head of school at Fusion Academy in Huntington Beach. Robin has worked in many areas of progressive education from early childhood through K-12. She's been involved in leading homeschooling classes, founding and directing a local charter school, elementary and middle school classroom teaching, and individualized special education planning and facilitation. Next, we have Dr. George Tucker. He is, oh yes, indeed. Dr. Tucker is a clinical psychologist who has practiced for the past 45 years in various inpatient, outpatient, and residential treatment settings. His practice is devoted to children and adults who have problems in learning, development, and behavior, as well as the significant others who attempt to help them. His book, Problem Children, It's Not Always the Parents' Fault, is based on his work, <laughs> it's true, is based on his work with this population and has been praised by parents and professionals alike. Kathy Johnson, <laughs> earned a Master's of Arts in Communication Disorders. She has been a licensed speech and language pathologist since 1991. Kathy is also certified as a structured literacy teacher by the Center for Effective Reading Intervention. She's the founder of both the Speech, Language, and Learning Center and Johnson Academy in San Juan Capistrano and is trained in numerous evidence-based reading interventions such as Linda Moodbell for phoneme sequencing, seeing stars, verbalizing and visualizing, Marianne Wolf's Rave O, Orton Gillingham, and is currently training in Slingerland. Kathy is also an adjunct professor at the University of Laverne. She consults with numerous school districts on implementation of evidence-based interventions and is Laguna Beach Unified's dyslexia expert, and clearly an expert in lots of things. <laughs> Dr. Ellis Krasnow is the director of STEM Cubed Academy and STEM Education for the HELP Group in Los Angeles and Orange County. After earning his PhD in philosophy from USC, my husband went there too, I'm not gonna say anything about that. <laughs> Dr. Krasnow taught widely at the college level, both in the US and South Africa. Dr. Krasnow is a frequent international speaker on the importance of STEM education and its benefits to those with social and learning differences. 
Dr. Kraz now speaks on the integration of STEM content and social-emotional learning. Javier Arguello <laughs> is the founder and executive director of COGEX, a research and development firm in applied cognitive science. Javier and his team partner with academics and leading scientists to create clinical programs that are customized to target cognition and metacognition while holding themselves accountable to meaningful and sustainable improvements in learning outcomes for students. COGEX programs are accessible through a network of partner organizations that represent COGEX. <laughs> so now that you know who these wonderful panelists are, I'm gonna step down and let my sister school, head of school, oh, just kidding. I'm gonna give someone else a mic. <laughs> Thank you, Vanessa. I'm really excited about this conversation. We, this is such an amazing group of people. So I want to start the conversation by citing some statistics about literacy in America that are pretty shocking. And we're going to spend some time talking about what to do about it. But I want to make sure that everybody really understands what this problem is. So the National Assessment of Educational Progress shows only about a third of fourth graders are proficient in reading. You and I talked about this. Two-thirds of students who cannot read proficiently by the end of fourth grade will end up in jail or on welfare. One in four children in America grow up without learning how to read. One in four. Students who don't read proficiently by the third grade are four times likelier to drop out of school. As of 2011, I know this is old, but America was the only free market country where the current generation was less educated than the previous one. I'm sure that's not getting better. Nearly 85% of the juveniles who face trial in the juvenile court system are functionally illiterate, proving that there's a close relationship between illiteracy and crime. 53% of fourth graders admitted to reading recreationally almost every day, while only 20% of eighth graders could say the same. Not surprising there. 75% of Americans who receive food stamps perform at the lowest two levels of literacy, and 90% of high school dropouts are on welfare. So we clearly have a problem. So we're here today to talk and learn about what happens when literacy education fails. I think everybody here kind of sees a little bit of that. Some of us see a lot of it. And also what happens when kids fall through the cracks. And in the end, talking about, not in the end, but throughout, talking about what are the mental health impacts of this and what do we see on the ground, not just in terms of how students perform in school, but what happens to them. And each one of our panelists sees this through a different lens. So I just want to sort of get a sense of everybody. I want to ask each one of you, what is it right now that is inspiring your work? Whether that's a book or some research or... Kathy, what are you into right now? Well, cognitive neuroscience has come so far, and Eric Kandel, who is a Nobel laureate, had a quote, and I don't know how many years ago this was, but we've come further in cognitive neuroscience in the last five years than we have in all mankind. So we are alive in a very exciting time that we know so much about reading, but the problem is, is that our top universities, Yale, Harvard, UCSF, have so much, and we've known so much for the past 30 years, but our school systems are not using the science. So that is really what's driving me. That's what I'm very passionate about, is to get that science into the hands of our educators. And so there's numerous movies, books, authors, scientists that I follow, Sally Shaywitz at Yale University, Fumiko Haft at UC San Francisco, who has developed the Apprise app, which Gavin Newsom has allotted millions of dollars, I don't know what that is, for every single child to be screened. This is an app that every single child will be given a laptop or whatever it is to be able to screen them for learning disabilities. We can catch children at four years of age before they've ever even seen a letter. So that is really driving my passion to um, spread the word about getting help for these kids very early. Javier? She said it better than I could have, but that's exactly what I do. <laughs> so we're an R&D in applied cognitive science, and the premise that we work with is that, or at least my goal, or what drives me to answer your question, is ending educational malpractice. You can't be in the business of schooling if you're not in the business of learning. And learning is quite complex, and there's a lot you can do to enhance learning. And what we're trying to do is apply the science that we know is kind of trapped in academia 
so that it's used by students to be more self-directed learners and by educators so that they can take the science of learning into how they teach everything. So the thing that you mentioned is exactly what drives our work. And I'm most excited right now and most nervous because I'm reaching out to every guru that I have come across or worked with in the past to partake in a platform for global professional development for educators, which we're doing in partnership with the University of Pennsylvania. And we're getting ready to roll out supposedly like two weeks ago. And now I'm really, really nervous, not knowing what year it's going to roll out, but hopefully at the end of this year. So that's what we're working on. Yeah. Cool. So first of all, I want to thank our hosts for inviting me. Very kind of them. But I think what's motivating us, me, at the moment um, is, and I applaud the focus on literacy, but I think there are also a whole nest of thinking skills and learning skills, particularly those that start with the very young, that are overlooked. I'm particularly interested in what a child's positive attributes are. We all have negatives, and so um, often it takes us some time to draw out of the child exactly what they do well. And so I do want to support them, but I don't want to focus entirely and exclusively on what they do poorly. So literacy, yes. Um, literacy to me means not only so being able to read, being able to write, but being able to think and being able to speak. And I think often those two are overlooked. I mean, being able to communicate, being able to communicate your thoughts, I think being numerate as well as being literate, so being able to count and being, you know, it's hard to see how someone survives without being numerate. Um, also having even fundamental thinking skills like um, being observant, being able to distinguish things. These things are both green, but one is a biological entity and the other one is not. So children really from zero to five are at a very interesting stage where in terms of brain development, and I would defer to the cognitive people in the room, their brain structure is really developing in very interesting ways. And the richness of the experiences they have when they're very young are going to determine their thinking skills and how they learn. And so if the experiences when they're very young, zero to five, aren't rich and aren't supportive, then we know this prejudices them later on. So that's what's motivating me, or we'd love to start a preschool, hence the direction, and so that's something we're thinking of doing. Wonderful. Wow, hard to follow all that. Kathy, I have heard so many good things about Kathy over the years. We are both in San Juan Capistrano, and I don't think I've ever met you. How weird is that? <laughs> 30 years of hearing about Kathy, and now I meet her. I think we even had an office next door to each other at one point on Rancho Viejo over there. Very scary. Well, I am mostly dealing with the aftermath of people not getting these things done. And I think what drives me is I see what happens when the literacy doesn't get caught or the illiteracy doesn't get caught early enough. I worked in the prison systems and decided that most of the people there were very behind in the skills, as you mentioned there. And I said, seems like it's too late for a lot of these people. We've got to get them earlier. And I think, you know, these apps for finding out what people are missing and at four years old and stuff are great. I'm not sure sometimes if we couldn't be a little more diplomatic about when to push where. And I'm going to lead off with my boring story about me and swimming. I have a very personal story about me swimming. When I was a kid, I was a really good athlete. I was named after Babe Ruth, guy who played for the New York Yankees. I think my dad wanted me to someday play for the New York Yankees. We had a pitcher from my hometown named Claude Osteen who played for the Dodgers before a lot of you were born. But a lot of people thought I had the Claude arm when I was little. So I was really good at most sports that I tried. I ended up getting a football scholarship to a small school in Kentucky. I got a golf scholarship to a school in Tennessee. And I was really good when I was young at floating. I was a short, fat kid. I'm now tall and thin. But when I was young, I was a short, fat kid. And we would go to the creek. I grew up in a town of 600. We would go skinny dipping, and the water was like this high. And so I played in the water, but I never really swam. And so somewhere in about the third grade, my mom took me to YMCA swimming school to learn how to swim. My body would not do it. 
I could float great, but when I tried to do my arms and my legs, I sank. And I got really good at sinking, but I didn't get really good at swimming. My mom dragged me back for three years. It was really embarrassing because the four-year-old girls and boys would go to the next class while I stayed back. And when I got to be about 10, I said, I'm not doing it anymore. And it was great because nobody made me do it. I learned to swim when I was 26 years old. I had a very well-kept secret. There were 37 people in my graduating class who didn't know that I couldn't swim. I got very good at disguising it. I even went to a little after football drinking party one night and we went to this place called the Rock Crusher that was basically an old rock quarry where they had filled up the water and everybody started taking off their clothes and jumping in except me and they said, why aren't you coming in? And I said, I can't swim. And I said, oh, George, anybody can swim. And I said, okay, cause I'm an idiot, right? So I jump in. And it turns out this water is 20 feet deep. And all I remember is, thank God, some of my friends could swim well. All I remember is, you really can't swim, can you? <laughs> but my point when I talk to parents and kids is that I was lucky because nobody made me do it. If school had been six hours a day of swimming-related activity, I would have probably been a dropout and a drug addict or a drunk out and a drop addict or something. <laughs> but I wasn't, I was lucky. And I wonder sometimes if maybe we could have different avenues for different people at different times. I see so many kids who take off so well in sports, for example, you know, and they seem to peak out as little league all-stars and then they don't make the high school baseball team. And I wonder if there isn't some way we can use that so that and the idea that our brains keep developing until we're 26, which is ironically the age I learned to swim, so I don't know if I needed that extra frontal lobe development or what, but that's what's driving me. Thank you, and I hope that wasn't too long. I love that story. And, you know, just at Fusion, we have the ability to organize things around what kids can do. I mean, obviously in high school kids are, they have to go through what they have to go through, but we have some ability to, to build on strengths and allow kids to, you know, to not be thrown into the pool in the way that you just described. But that is such a rare environment, right? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if that was possible in more places? That was a perfect story. Kathy, can you start us off in talking about what you're seeing in the early years and maybe talk more about the program that you mentioned that our governor is investing in and just what you're seeing in terms of literacy for young kids and, well, with maybe just in California? So what I'm seeing is that mostly in California, well, actually I've been in Boston quite a bit to test at MIT. What I'm seeing in terms of literacy is kind of what I mentioned earlier was that we're not teaching our children to read based on science, how the brain reads, if you will. There seems to be a lot of legislation throughout the United States that is happening, which is very positive, AB 1369 in California that is now mandating that children be evaluated in terms of phonological processing, which is phonemic awareness, which is the biggest predictor of reading abilities in children, the CTOP specifically. It's not mandating that the CTOP be given, but it's mandating that phonological processing be assessed. And we know that when children have deficits in phonemic awareness or rapid naming, that's highly predictive of reading abilities in children. Sally Shaywitz has touted the number of about 88%. So if we give this assessment to children, we would be able to vet out about 88% of children with reading disabilities. And since dyslexia comprises 80 to 90% of reading disabilities, we'd be able to really catch a lot of children. So I'm seeing that happening. It's just not happening very quickly. So now, since phonological processing is considered one of the basic psychological processes, then the child would then qualify for under specific learning disabilities. So that's good, it's letting them qualify. The problem is, what I'm seeing is we are getting more kids qualified, but the schools still don't have the ability to deliver evidence-based intervention. I see a little bit of a trend that the schools are now saying that they can't, 
because they can't. Um, whereas before, in prior years, it was, oh yeah, they go with our reading person and they're doing XYZ intervention, um, which is not evidence-based. So I'm seeing a little bit of push forward. It's just not happening fast enough. Ellis, you work with younger students and you shared a little bit about what your approach is, but can you give us a little bit more information about the successes that you're having with your students and how you go about getting there? Sure. So, in many ways, we started with outcomes. So, for example, kids on the spectrum go to college in far smaller numbers than the general population, and 80% of them don't graduate in six years. It's also true that kids on the spectrum for the first eight years after graduating high school are unemployed. So those are fairly horrific numbers. If you think you're a child, you've just graduated high school, you're feeling proud of yourself, you've mastered your high school exams, you're ready to show the world what you're made of and what you can do, and you go out and for eight years you don't find a job, that's incredibly debilitating. So we looked at outcomes, and I'm using in a sense kids on the spectrum as proxy for kids with special needs, because the situation isn't vastly different for the others. And so we looked at those outcomes and asked the question, what can we do differently, K through 12, to alter the outcome post high school? And that's really how STEM Cubed Academy came about. For good or for ill, we live in a scientific world, in a technological world. And so we asked ourselves, what are we best giving the children in terms of their education. And so I talk a little bit about thinking skills. And in a sense, I think that we're in a world where it's not content-driven. It's not so much what you know that counts. It's what you can do with what you know that counts. Because content is very easy to come by. You can look something up. It's not the case that when I was at school as a child, the goal of an education was to fill your head with as much information as possible, as many facts as possible and you were questioned in that way, you had to rote learn them. Today, that style of education is not effective. It doesn't serve our kids well for the 21st century. I was actually talking to George earlier on about a child in kindergarten today is five years old. She's going to be 85 in the 22nd century. So ask yourself, you know, I have kindergartners, I have first graders, as an educator, what should I be teaching that child so she can be successful in the 20? Can you imagine or predict? You can't, it's hard to see 2030, 10 years out, or 2040. She'll start working at 2040, 2035, 2040. So these are the kinds of things that keep me awake at night. What kinds of things, what should education look like? And clearly education can't be about teaching facts, because the facts are changing all the time. So we looked at outcomes, we asked ourselves how we can make a difference, and we adopted a curriculum and an approach which we think improves outcomes. And we do have the longest running STEM Cubed Academy so far is only four years. We started in 2015, so I don't have oodles of data to share with you, but anecdotally the results are extremely promising. I had hoped that a lot of the things that you mentioned would be taken care of by the IDEA Act. When was that passed? Individuals with Disabilities Educational Act. When? Oh, IDEA. IDEA. Uh, 2012. That long ago, huh? But the AB 1369 was only three years ago. Well, at my understanding of that is that each child has a right to learn in the modality that is best for them. So if we find the modality that is best for them, they should be taught in that modality. And I said, oh my gosh, this is everything I've been preaching about for 40 years. But now what I'm, and under public law 94-142, maybe we need our attorneys back for this one. Basically it said if the school could not provide it, they had to pay for it for somebody who could provide it. So is that not happening? Aw. I think the, where is Amanda, where are they? This might be an old number. The litigation success rate is 7%. Seven. One, a single digit number. Because districts like, okay, we're far enough from Capo, hopefully nobody's here. I mean, think about how big that district anybody. is. Yeah, shh. They have very deep pockets. I mean, you go to an IEP or you're going to a meeting, there's 10 people in a room, they have their PhD numbers person, statistician, they have their PhD psychologist, and blah, 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 blah. 
I mean, how do you fight that? I'm not worried, but I have a child who is dyslexic, and it took, I had homeschooling because the teacher did such a bad job of teaching him that he, he cried when he saw books, so I had to use my imagination to teach him. That way, USD is where he started. They would not let us use the word dyslexic. So if you don't have the word in your vocabulary, how are you going to address that child's problem? You don't have to find a school because there's no such thing as dyslexia in what we say. And he wasn't helped until we moved out to the beach and had an IEP attorney, and still. It's tough. I mean, that's why these charter schools are popping up. That's why we have alternative learning environments, because our public schools are not serving our children. I'm from Capo. My kids were in private school, but this is a very stark example how nothing has changed. I took, I went to my local public school. My child was five years old. Some, I didn't do what I do now. I was a speech pathologist. Went to our local public school. Hey, you know, can you do an evaluation? She was five years old. We bring her here, and we were going to watch her for six months. And it just didn't make them watch her do what, you know? So she's 23. She just turned 23. And I just had a parent that I came and evaluated their child at the same school. I won't say the name. And the same almost identical situation, except the child is in fifth grade reading at a first grade level. And they told the parents, we tested for dyslexia. Your child's not dyslexic. Well, first of all, there is no test for dyslexia, and second of all, if the child roughly IQ 120, and what is the explanation for a fifth grader to be reading at first grade? Not poverty, four, four ways we rule out dyslexia, okay? Poverty, lack of exposure to curriculum, the kid went, did three years of preschool, etc. You know, we have this high IQ, and we don't even use the discrepancy theory anymore. So it has not changed. In, I mean, Capistrano Unified, South Orange County, you know, it's, it's not a poverty situation. Let's talk a little bit about what remediation is available and how, actually, I'm looking at you realizing you haven't told your story yet. No, I want to, everyone deserves to hear your story, Javier. Go ahead and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell your story yeah. for us. Please. I think I've been nervous about this because I've known that I have to share my story in advance. Normally, I don't know that. I got married without my wife knowing my story. What right do you have <laughs> to know my story after like barely saying hi? So, okay, so now you have to know if it's true or not. Okay, can I repeat it? So I honestly would not share this at all, what I'm about to tell you, and I don't think I ever imagined that I would ever be comfortable sharing this story. And I'm kind of, you know, it's sad to, to know that my story is not anomalous. It should be anomalous, but it has too many people that share it. When maybe there's a little more drama in my story because I was born in Nicaragua and there was a war when I was five and we were one of the first families that were targeted. And so one day I opened the door to where we lived and there was a bazooka lined up to blow us up and our neighbors had just been blown up. We were next and we escaped. So I've read now about the effects of trauma on your genes and actually on your kids. You know, the trauma sticks in the, and it's hereditary. So I don't know what to do about that. That's too late. I have two kids. So, <laughs> so that little bazooka 41 years ago is a problem still. So at that point, we snuck out through a tunnel. We were stopped again to be killed. Thank God, you know, coming from a poor country, maybe the, the illiteracy rate was much, much higher than it should be. Speaking of which, that saved my life because they didn't know they had caught us. So my father was kind of quick on his feet and wished the uh, assassins luck finding us, but didn't reveal that it was us that they were after. So we made it out with literally the clothes that we were wearing to DC, thinking we we're gonna be there 48 hours. I'm still there. That was September 13th, 1978. So 41 years ago and, and a month or so. I celebrated my 40th anniversary with Fusion in LA, realizing like, hey, we're having a glass of wine. I didn't know this was happening. So after that, I, I moved around countries and systems and private and public. And my brother was probably dyslexic is what I think going back, did turn to drugs, did end up in jail, did end up dead. So we lost him from a learning issue. I didn't go to jail probably because I saw that path, but drugs was probably perfect for me to escape the struggle of failing to learn. So I knew I couldn't do drugs because I didn't want to die, but 
I couldn't succeed in school. We had switched like back and forth, public-private, and then I had also gone to competitions at a national level for math. So math came easy. I would finish the math book the day I would get it. To me, that was like cartoons. I would just go through it. But then somehow my mom thought, skip eighth grade, you don't really speak English, we'll send you to this school that you can't afford, so please translate. And then there's this Jesuit priest, and I'm 13, I shouldn't be there. My mom says in Spanish, decile por favor que tenés que I'm like, so my mother says that I have to enroll here, but we can't afford it. And the priest looks at me like, explain that. And so my mother just, you know, said it's a moral thing, you have to be here. And then the priest said, okay, well, can you be, a, do you know how to mop? And so I became the janitor, and then I'm introduced to Macbeth, and I, you know, I can barely read normal English, and this to me is just crazy. So this doesn't make any sense. I start getting Fs in everything, and I'm in French. I'm like, why am I in French? I should be in, like, English. I, I so in French, I'm getting an F. In English, I'm getting an F. So I'm failing everything. I'm getting, I'm the janitor during breaks, and I have detention every single day after school, so bad that I have to come on Saturdays. So they told me that I broke the all-time record for detention. I didn't learn anything in high school. Then when I was getting kicked out, which was really my goal, I didn't want to be there. And this is rational. If you're failing, who wants more? It's not like dessert, you know? This doesn't work that way. So you want out. And you know, even kids that you're saying they're inattentive, yes, if I'm failing to process the information, inattentiveness is my defense mechanism, right? So does misbehavior and negative emotions and all the things that we know are correlated. So for me, I really wanted out. I didn't know where I would go next, but uh, it turns out it was a public school where I was invisible. So I did really well because I didn't have to show up. Teachers didn't know who I was and I somehow graduated. Again, my mom steps in and says, you know, still doesn't speak English, enrolls me in a community college at the community college, I didn't want more evidence that at 13, I was labeled mildly retarded. And I saw the outcome of this. That's when I checked out and then said, I'm never going to get an education because now I have evidence of everything that's wrong. So I ended up enrolling at the community college because my mother kind of forced it. I was really passionate about the drug problem, the epidemic, and my brother was addicted to drugs. So I decided to write a paper about how kind of evil the war on drug war was and how inhumane like the lack of treatment education and so i get an f and i realize okay there goes my passion for this issue my brother is dying i clearly don't get it i'm dropping out of that major and i end up dropping out of the community college altogether with a 1.6 gpa earned through plagiarism because i got an a in a course that i stole a paper from a trash can to get that a so that was the only A that inflated my GPA to a 1.6. So I dropped out. I dropped out and I gave up on the prospect of learning. So when I speak with experts, I'm never insecure about the fact that I know failure better than they do because they have PhDs. They never failed. They usually succeeded. So that's the impetus for my work. That took me back to college. And I still now at this point, I am a lifelong learner and my wife is the one that blocks me from re-enrolling in graduate school. So now that you know what she didn't know, maybe you can write a note and help me get permission. So that's the story that, that I was told I had to, to tell. But I wasn't comfortable saying this. I'm still sweating, sweaty palms, so from, from sharing this. So, yeah. Thank you. So at Fusion, Again, we're able to sort of teach around disabilities in a way. Like we can take a student who struggles with reading in ninth grade, who reads at a first grade level, and if they can access the curriculum, if their IQ is in a normal range, we can work around that. We can't remediate it, but we can work around it. We can teach U.S. history. There are fusion teachers in the audience who can teach U.S. history by showing video, by using audible books, and that student's going to learn and can pass and can create some sort of a project, can pass a test, and can do well. But again, super pristine environment. That's not happening in traditional schools. So I would love, well, and so often, as you all have shared, we see students who come to us with anxiety, with depression, and what's showing up on the surface is a mental health issue. But as we dig deeper, we see that actually it's a learning challenge that's underneath that sometimes nobody even knows about. Nobody realizes the connection. So 
I know you're going to share more with us about that, George. But first, let's talk about remediation and strategies that, are, that we can use, that are being used, to help kids who are struggling before, hopefully, they get to you or they come to me. So when I'm referring to evidence-based interventions, I'm talking about there's a whole plethora of interventions that are what we call evidence-based. There's not one reading program that is the best reading intervention for dyslexics. There are numerous interventions. And the gold standard of reading intervention would be Gorton-Gillingham, but there are some flaws in that. Phonemic awareness has to be taught very systematically and from you know, basic to very advanced levels of phonemic awareness. That seems to be the big hole that's missing in a lot of the evidence-based interventions. Orton-Gillingham is a philosophy, it's not a program. Seeing stars, Linda Moodbell, is a program. So there's a lot of education that has to occur with what's evidence-based, what is not, what's a program, what's an intervention, and what works with the type of dyslexia or learning disability, whether it's dysgraphia or dyscalculia. So now I've kind of forgotten the question. Okay, we're talking about interventions. <laughs> what can we do about it? What is being done? What are we seeing things moving forward? A little bit. They seem to be, I know the schools are a lot more motivated now because of lawsuits and because of law. So I think we're moving in a positive direction, so that's excellent. But those interventions are very expensive, as you know. So what you were referencing, which I love, is that you know we're using audibles, learning ally, speech-to-text software such as Dragon Speaking Naturally, Google Docs, Google Share, Grammarly.com. We know that dyslexia is a language-based learning disability. They have issues in syntax, grammar, phonology. So all of these technological interventions, when used, if used, can make all the difference in the world. And I want to throw out the scanning pen which actually scans text to kids and reads it out loud to them and they can see it and they can scan it and send it to their Gmail account and make flashcards. So there's so much in technology. And I encourage any of you that do have dyslexic kids to join your International Dyslexia Association local branch and get out to the conferences. It's very, I think it's less than $50 a year to join, and there are so many resources. Alice, can you share a little bit about interventions that you, maybe interventions is the wrong word, but I know you're working with strengths-based learning for younger kids. Right, and so certainly remediation that has to be done, we do a lot of it in elementary and middle school. By the time a child gets to high school, they're building a transcript uh, for graduation, they're interested in college, so the focus changes, shifts more from remediation to you talked before about workarounds. So we do a lot of workarounds as well. A kid might be able to speak well, but not be able to write. And so um, a kid might be able to do a presentation, maybe it's PowerPoint, maybe we do have them use Google Docs and extensive uh, technological tools in order to find alternatives to just standard-based communication. So at a young age though, definitely, the kind of interventions you talk about, we have Linda moved out uh, trained teachers. So, you know, we don't want to throw out the baby and the bathwater, but definitely we do want to be strength-based. We want to nod quite heavily to what the child does well, rather than what the child does poorly. Often reading and writing literature might not be the child's preferred of expression, might have a child who's particularly artistic. Um, we do have a child at the moment who's in high school who lives for art and so has managed to infuse art in almost every single project. So this for her is satisfying, but it's also her way of showing meaning, of creating meaning. So we try to be flexible, we try to listen to the child and begin with what their passion, their interest, their strength is. I love that. Javier, can you tell us about your work in this field? Sure. Yeah, I guess I'd take a step back to even question the premise of what we're trying to accomplish when we say you're succeeding at learning. Because you could have a student get an A at Stanford in the spring, take the summer off, come back in the fall, retest them, and they'll get an F. Is that a successful learner? Do you want that? And talk about the skills of the future. There's a quote that I love that is from the first century, a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, and he says, the mind is not a vessel to be filled but fire to be ignited. And in school, it seems like we bring a lot of water to kill that fire. <laughs> and what we need is pyromaniac behavior. We want fire. We don't want 
swimming a notion of water that intimidates people from jumping in, right? We actually really want fire, brains on fire. And we know we have neurological diversity in the classroom. So I think it's very hard to have a blanket statement of what should be done, but in this regard to this conversation of language processing disorder affecting so many kids, there is also a subset of data that's very positive that's worth mentioning to the, you know, I think it's one in three don't graduate from high school, you were saying it's like three quarters of juvenile detention is kids with language processing issues, and I think 50% of drug and alcohol addiction is, that's the dark side. They're also like half of MIT, half of NASA, 40% of entrepreneurs that are successful have language processing disorder. So, you know, the data seems to indicate that you're just as likely to go to Yale or jail, and one's better than the other one. And we can kind of <laughs> steer kids towards Yale so they don't go to jail with the right interventions. It actually even costs less. Jail costs us as taxpayers like $65,000 a year, and Yale is still cheaper than that. So. Even from a social standpoint, when we look at social policy and the injustice of doing the right thing for kids, it actually is cheaper from a policy standpoint to do the right thing for kids and provide the right intervention than to string them along for 12 years of IEPs that are suspending the reality of then confronting college and having to remediate and take high school level courses at college prices. And the data there shows that the likelihood of you graduating from college goes down when you do what you must. So the medicine kills the patient, at which point now they have college debt for high school prices and they're a dropout. And there comes the stigma with that. So economically, it doesn't make sense to spend 12 years in IEP in order for somebody to then incur debt. So the state's in debt, the student's in debt, and nobody succeeded. We could actually do the right thing. So there's math around this that could be more compelling. What we do is, I'll be brief on this, is the flip side of the Orton-Gillingham or these programs that are wonderful at phonemic awareness and decoding and making sure that happens more fluidly and naturally is that language processing disorder affects what we call the base of the learning pyramid, which is the interplay between working memory, attention, and processing speed. Usually, language processing will affect at least one of these. That also affects your ability to encode and retrieve information as well as reading. So our program targets that quite heavily and effectively so students can, through evidence-based approaches that enhance their understanding of how they learn and their ability to learn. So that the last thing I would say is every student should understand how their brain works. The mind shouldn't be a, a mystery to a student that's relying on it every single day. And to me, that's like the lowest hanging fruit is demystify how your brain works so every student feels empowered to control their learning. That to me is just very basic common sense. So. I'll stop there. This topic is what I'm too passionate about to be concise. So, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to share anything about remediation strategies that um, you know a little bit about? So our programs are quite customized, clinical, and they're technology free. And we start with the standard of every student should be a self-regulated learner. What does that mean? And what do we need to do to get there, right? The best research done in the world that I've found on what works in education is done by John Hattie. And he says, ultimately, after analyzing data on 11,000 meta-analyses for 300 million kids and crunching numbers for 11 years, he comes to, if you have to distill it into one sentence, what he says is the best learning occurs when teachers see learning through the prism of their students and students become the teachers of their own learning. So it's like flipping that environment. So if you think about that, what works best so the blanket approach, teaching the science of learning in mass to teachers and to students. So we all start informed with how our brain works. And then you have to kind of customize what we do for each student and take them out of the classroom and do a clinical approach, which I still think from a policy standpoint is cheaper than IV for 12 years. And that's just, I guess, customized to, to get into the specifics. So, yeah. Thank you. A child in special education, it costs a million dollars. What do you think, George? How are you seeing this sort of um, middle ages thing? Well, again, usually I see them at the wrong end. I've worked with some younger kids on mindfulness techniques and metacognitive things, which most kids don't remember the word metacognitive, so I teach them to say, I met a thought today. So this is, instead that. of saying I'm a loser, you say, I had a thought that I'm a loser. So I met the thought that I'm a loser, and I shot it, or something like that. You know, you don't have to keep that in there. So there's a lot, of, that. a lot of good work in mindfulness areas. The other thing I do is that a lot of these kids, I talk in my book about how some kids learn okay, but their social 
learning is not so good and their body awareness awful. And the best explanation I've heard for why I couldn't swim came from the people at Activate Learning. Is anybody here from Activate Learning? They they told me how my hemispheres weren't talking to each other. So when I did my right arm and left arm, and I'm left-handed, so that probably had something to do with it too, I don't know. But it wasn't working together. But all my teachers who tried to teach me how to swim, instead of saying what kids usually get when they don't learn is they're not trying hard enough, and so they're being given the same information to do the same things more often, which is the equivalent of doing the same thing over and expecting different results, which was, I think, Einstein's definition of mental illness. But there is a way, I think, to help kids become more aware of their body. One of the things I do, we could do it real easily here, is I have kids do their hand temperature. I call this poor man's biofeedback. <laughs> you put both hands to your cheeks, and if your hands are as warm as your cheeks, that's good. It means you're managing your stress. You probably haven't had six cups of coffee. And most of my kids who do this religiously will come to me after the first week and say that their hands were pretty much cold from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. And so we do some breathing and some mindfulness and some bringing it down. And I can have a lot of kids actually flip that and become, you know, at least half the time their hands are warm. The other thing is if they get that during a test, sometimes I can use that to get them extra time on testing or do the testing alone and stuff like that. It's really interesting. If you do this for a couple of weeks, you'll learn a lot about your body, even if you're over 18 and haven't been doing it for a while, but it's a really good cheap connection. You can also buy these hand thermometers and things like that, but this is really easy and it works really, really well. If they're cold all the time or warm all the time, it doesn't, but it's just a simple little intervention that gets me getting them tuned into themselves more, and maybe that would help Javier with them learning how to learn. So that's my two cents on that one. I also tell a lot of these kids, I'll speak to two more areas. That's the anxiety part. Depression. There is a study that nobody likes to hear about now that was done with learned helplessness. Is everybody aware of this? There's this guy named Seligman, Martin E.P. Seligman at the University of Pennsylvania, did this horrible thing that probably couldn't get by any research committees anymore but he put dogs in an inescapable shock situation. When a dog is on a, let's say a grid, and they get shocked, they will quickly jump off the grid, but he limited their movement so that they couldn't. And after about, I don't know, X, Y, or Z number of shocks, he took off the harness so that the dogs could jump, and the dogs didn't jump. And he called that learned helplessness. The dogs had been trying to jump so that even after the harness was taken off, they didn't jump. They had learned that it didn't work. And I see so many kids and so many parents, you know, we tried this, we tried that, and they're, they're at the learned helplessness state. And a lot of the kids get diagnosed as depressed and get put on antidepressants and all that stuff. And sometimes it works, but sometimes I say, let's try this first. We were speaking earlier about the good old days. There was one time in the 80s, I think I had something like 160 kids in various residential programs across Southern California. And of those 160 kids, zero were on medication, zero. And most of those kids got better. We had institutional control that now we don't have unless you send them to Montana or Samoa or one of those other places where they can lock the doors. So I think that's it. Depression, anxiety, what was the other one? Self-regulation is the mindfulness. Mindfulness is good stuff. Thank you. So this has been kind of painful to think about, and I'm wondering if we can sort of wrap it up by talking about what we can do. What can we ask our audience to do? What can we all do? How do we make a difference in the lives of those who we impact on an everyday basis, in the lives of our own children? How do we advocate for our own kids, for the parents in the room? 
How did we get to the point where Gavin Newsom is having every student take a certain kind of test? I mean, that required some work on the part of all of us, and how do we continue that? Sorry, I'm always first. So what can we do from, I really encourage parents and educators to join your local International Dyslexia Association branch. In the 80s, we had a lot of, we didn't know about autism the way that we know about autism now. And how we came to provide ABA interventions for kids with autism was because of parents. Parents have a very loud voice and dyslexia, you can see autism, you can't see dyslexia, you can't tell. And so parents need to band together. We need to, you know, like I said, is learn as much as you can. Sally Shaywitz, all these big names, Vimiko Haft, Marianne Wolf. I mean, we have some really huge names and dyslexia. We need to get this information to our schools. And we need to make sure that all of our children, it's one out of five, this is not rare, we need to make sure that all children are screened, and I believe it's coming. It's very soon. You know, I think as a parent, and I'm assuming we're parents here, you know, as a parent, what do you want for your child? And I think if you ask yourself honestly, you want your child to be the best they can be. And whatever that might mean to your individual child, whatever that might mean to you. And so ask yourself if your child in their current environment is really being fulfilled if they do have the opportunity to be the best they can be? And if the answer is no, then I think it's self-explanatory that you shouldn't accept where they are and what they're doing. And so you should be prepared to do something different. There are, and I agree with the other speakers, there are many more alternatives today than there used to be. And so if your child is in an environment where they're being educated for the last century instead of for the coming one, then it's not going to serve them well. Yeah, I think one alternative to despair, meaning from the Latin out of hope, is hope. And we've learned a lot more about the brain, that the brain basically keeps developing until probably around the age of 26, which is ironically the age I learned to swim. A lot of my patients have come back over the years and said, I couldn't do calculus in high school. I went to the Navy, I went to college, calculus was easy. Our job is to keep those kids alive and off drugs long enough to let those frontal lobes develop. And if that means locking them up in Samoa or whatever it takes, then we gotta do it. I had another good piece of that just went out my brain right now, but as long as we can keep them alive and keep that brain developing, I think there's hope for the future. Oh, I know the other piece I was going to say was I went to a 55-85 class last week. Does anybody know what that is? Well, 55-85 is what you do to an adolescent or child who is a danger to himself or others. The adult code is 5150. Since 2003, the number of evaluations of children and adolescents for 55-85s has gone up like this. Guess what happened in 2003? The iPhone. The iPhone. Somebody, yay. This lady gets an extra ticket. Okay. Um, again, it's such a wonderful, positive thing. My son and I had it out a few years ago about Counter-Strike. I said, either the computer goes, I go, or you go. And he was looking at me, and I said, just the fact that you have to think about it. But... My son now wants to be a pilot. He's in his first year. He's soloed 35 times. And a lot of the instrumentation and stuff, I think he picked up so fast because of Counter-Strike. So again, I don't know what skills we're going to be needing. Who knows? I know swimming didn't do me any good. Once I learned to swim, I still don't have a gold medal in swimming. But the skills that we will be needing and so on, I don't think... Anything can be hurt by us teaching them more skills for self-regulation, self-control, tuning into their body, learning social skills and all that. That's going to pay off no matter what's going on. Keeping them alive and well and letting the frontal lobes develop. Hope for the future. I'd like to finish maybe by connecting the dog, Einstein, pyromaniacs, uh, <laughs> a few of the things we discussed with. It's true that we don't know what skills they'll need in the future, which is why we know what we need to give students in the present, the ability to become self-directed learners so that they can learn for life. 
if they're sophisticated, independent, self-directed, self-regulated learners, then they can go get that information. The thing is, I think we start with the paradigm of we're going to deposit this in your brain because you're going to need it at work. And we already know that the economy is decoupled from the educational system. The output of kids going into the labor force is not what the labor force is demanding of these kids. So the system is completely broken, not in 85 years. This year, according to the global to studies by the World Economic Forum, the top skills that are required to succeed in the economy are nowhere to be found in, found in schools. And a study that was done of 5,500 executives concluded that this is the lost generation because they have employed and they have jobs that these kids can't fulfill. So I think we know that we cannot continue to be decoupled in terms of schooling and the economy. They're supposed to feed each other. And I think that dog was rational. So Martin Seligman was cruel to do that. But when the dog is not jumping because they've tried and tried and tried and tried and they keep getting electrocuted, we can call it learned helplessness. But you also cited Einstein, and you said if you try something and try it again, it's the definition of irrationality. So that dog was rational. You're not supposed to jump. You're not supposed to want to hurt yourself. And kids are failing to jump because they don't want to hurt themselves. So I think the trampoline is a revolution. A revolution is getting all of the educators out there who join the system for very good reasons. You have to equip them with the skills to transform the system that traps them because educators get broken by the system or they leave. So we have a latent supply of an army that wants all of this knowledge in the podcast that they're doing and everything I think moves the needle to find solutions that change the system that we all know is broken. So there is light, there's data, there's science. We just need to activate these dormant sleeper cells of educators to change the system. Thank you. These amazing women over here ready to come on stage. So I'm just going to say thank you so much to all of you for this beautiful conversation. This has been really wonderful. We kind of have a couple of items to thank the panelists again. Thank you so much. They'll be enjoying the networking with the beautiful wind that's happening outside. So we're going to do a couple of announcements and then and a raffle. So stay seated just momentarily while Amanda hands out the beautiful thank yous. You guys all should have gotten a drink ticket, so go and get a drink, and then go around to all the sponsors. We really wanted to have sponsors that had solutions, because we talked about a lot of problems. So if you're depressed, go outside, grab a drink, and look at the solutions that all of them are offering. Lauren, can you come up? Actually, the two Laurens. Lauren and Lawrence. Lauren squared. So all of you are enjoying this wonderful event, this wonderful conversation. You're about to enjoy some wonderful food and drinks, and it's all because of these two women up here. So big round of applause. We want to thank you so much. This year, without them, it would have been us pulling out our hair as usual, so we thank you so much. And then thank you to Philip, Victoria, and our other Lauren. We have three Laurens in our lives. We pay them, so I, we'll do a piece party tomorrow, you guys, I swear. So get your raffle tickets out, because we're going to do... Um, that wasn't fun. Not that wasn't fun. <laughs> so the first item, it's like a package, Chipotle, <laughs> Bowers Museum. Ooh, Pretend City. Okay, this one was good. Hopefully you have kids. All right. Eight, nine, one, eight, six, three, six. Eight nine one eight six three. Yay! <laughs> All right, and then Vicky's going to talk about our next one. And don't worry, we've got raffle prizes coming throughout the night, so keep your tickets handy. Oh, this one's going to be good. This is an exotic car rental. If you're looking for your Lambo, if you're looking for your Ferrari for the day, for the gram. One lucky winner. Eight nine one eight six one nine. No, no. Fez doesn't get it because that's his brother-in-law who donated this. So we're doing it again. One more. No. What we Okay. Okay. Eight nine one. Eight six zero three. Eight nine one eight six zero three. 
Okay. Well, while she goes to check her ticket, we have, we told you, we teased it out that we have a big announcement. So we're going to bring up one of our former law clerks and now associate attorney for us, Victoria Lucero. So everyone congratulate her. She just passed, found out to pass the bar. And so she's going to talk about our big announcement. Good evening, everybody. Um, I don't know if many of you know me, but I've been with the Inclusive Education Project for about almost three years now. <laughs> and now I will be an associate attorney with the Inclusive Education Project. We are expanding into New Mexico, which is where I will be taking the Inclusive Education Project. And we are also going to be offering affirmative immigration services that I will be doing for the project. So stay tuned starting January 2020, all of that. We're going to be putting up a lot of information, teasing it out between now and 2020, but you guys are the first to know. Was it your number? member? You haven't even had a drink yet, have you? No. I can't see. I don't have my glasses. Get her a drink. No, it's not. First you got here. All right, Victoria, pull one out. Eight nine one eight six two eight. All right, thank you guys so much. So, like I said, keep your tickets handy. The bar, the food, all our vendors are open. Go talk network. We'll do raffles throughout the evening. Thank you so much for coming.